Within just a few years, we will spend more on interest payments than we will on national defense. That is a bright flashing warning sign that we are on an unsustainable path. And clearly it is unsustainable because the fastest growing part of our budget is interest payments. And when you have a debt that's growing faster than your economy, obviously something will have to give. To hear more about potential impacts of our increasing federal debt level, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Pushkin Japan is the world's third biggest economy, and this year its stock market, which usually is pretty unremarkable, has shown some really impressive signs of life. It's up 20% on the year, and that rally has been built on signs of really big change happening in corporate Japan. Today on the show, it's crunch time for Japanese markets. This is Unhedged, the markets and finance show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in the New York studio. Joined from London by the FT's other biggest Japan fan, Katie Martin. <laughs> hey, Ethan, how are you? I'm well, thanks. I love talking about Japan. I feel like it's like a bug that bit me, and I want to talk about it as much as our producers will let us talk about it. Uh, and I feel like you're the same way. You write about this a lot, too. I've been in this business an embarrassingly long time, like writing about markets and talking to people about markets. And I've honestly gone for like literally decades without anyone mentioning Japanese stocks, except to say, never buy Japanese stocks because <laughs> they will always mess you up. I know there's a, there's a private banker who um, who I talk to quite often and he says that was like the first piece of advice that anyone gave him when he went to a trading floor was whatever you do, don't buy Japan. <laughs> it, will, it will never go your way. It will always let you down. You know, it's it's been a terrible market to be in ever since the crash 30 years ago. But now suddenly... I have fund managers cheering my ear off about it all the time. People are looking at Japan. They're already invested in Japan. Suddenly, this is one of the kind of go-to markets. And uh, yeah, it's quite unsettling, honestly. Well, let's back up, maybe back to you know, March, April, May, when the rally first started kicking off in earnest. What was the case for Japanese equities back then, Katie, toward the beginning of this year? The buy case, well, it was a few things. It is partly the weak yen, so that's really good for exporters. People will argue about really how genuinely important this is for the performance of the stock market, but it certainly helps certain types of companies. But it's also about this big focus that has taken root on a government level and on a stock market level around corporate governance and about making companies think differently about actively working to push their share price higher. Hmm. This might sound quite strange to Americans, for example. I get this, but it's a big shift for corporate Japan to be told, right, You've got to push your price to book ratio higher, which means so your your price to book ratio is does your share price indicate that your company is worth more than the sum total of all of your assets? So if you like liquidated everything tomorrow, just sold everything that you own as a business, would that be worth more or less than your share price? And the what the push has been to, is to say you've got to push valuations high, you've got to push multiples high, you've got to bring in investors, whether that's by bumping up your dividends, whether it's by a shift in corporate strategy, whether it's by buying back stocks or a combination of all of these things, just do what you can to push your share price higher. This is like a really big shift in the mindset, honestly. 
Absolutely. It comes down to, you know, what model of capitalism is going to exist in Japan long term. You're getting a bit deep and meaningful here, aren't you, Ethan? I mean, come on. <laughs> There's a great piece by the journalist and academics uh, Stephen Vogel uh, called Japan's Ambivalent Pursuit of Shareholder Capitalism that kind of goes through how, you know, international finance tried to export a U.S. and maybe U.K. style shareholder first capitalist model to Japan. And the Japanese were kind of like, eh? Well, we believe in stakeholder capitalism here in Japan. But mm. that does seem to be changing, Katie, as you mentioned. You know, there was an initial push in the early 2010s during kind of the Abenomics era, you know, Shinzo Abe's big push to get an official corporate code of conduct inducted and to just change the norms and expectations surrounding how companies are run. That if you make excess profit... You're not just going to put it in the bank and sit on it. Mm. You're not going to just buy your rivals slash friends shares and do nothing with it. You're going to take that cash and return it to the investors that have you know, given you their capital to do business with. Yeah. And the, there's a lot of other kind of really big factors at play here. right? One of them is inflation, which we should definitely talk about. But the other one is like demographics. Mm. And you can't get much more fundamental than this. Right. So obviously, Japan has a very rapidly aging population. One of the knock-on effects of that, investors constantly say to me, is that suddenly workers are much more valued. And so if you are, you know, on the younger side and you are a worker and your company decides to rationalise and let people go, previously this would have been seen as just unacceptable. You've got to keep people in jobs. Now the mindset is much more, well, people can walk down the road and get another job somewhere else now because workers are in so much demand. So that completely shifts how companies think about staffing levels and rationalization efforts and mergers and acquisitions and, you know, the, the prospect of being taken over by some overseas company, all of that stuff. It just gives you a slightly different slant, really, on how that all works. So that was the case for Japan kind of coming into this year. And maybe I'd, I'd add to that list the fact that people were looking for a China alternative within Asia. Yeah, I think that time. was a big force. Yeah. So people looking for a China alternative, uh, the weekend, this change in the way Japanese companies are run and, and also shifts in, in Japanese demography. So you saw a big run up in the stock market. But since about maybe June or so, that's stalled out and it's been about flat. And I think it's gotten people to ask the, you know, the, the question of why. And, you know, you framed this in, in a nice recent column, Katie, that, you know, it, it's it's kind of crunch time for Japanese markets to sort of prove that this rally is for real and, and not just sort of a blip on the radar. Now, the third quarter of this year was pretty horrible for kind of all markets mm. globally. It was yeah. like a real stinker, actually. Like Markets had a really bad summer, early autumn. And Japan's not immune to this stuff, right? You know, if there is a, a pullback in the global economy or a pullback in, in investor sentiment, then you would expect Japan to suffer the same sort of things as as everyone else. So the hope now is resting on a couple of things. One of them is that early next year, a massive program of encouraging ordinary Japanese people to invest in stocks is going to kick in. This is the NISA yeah. program. It's kind of modelled on the British ISA scheme for what's kind of, you know, tax-free um, or tax-efficient investment programs. And that's going to kick off next year. And so related to that, the authorities want to make sure that when they're going to be trying to lure lots of ordinary Japanese people into the stock market, they don't want this to be a disaster. They don't, mm. <laughs> they don't want people to lose money horribly. They want markets to perform well. So they're redoubling efforts to boost corporate performance effectively. 
And I think you've seen pressure from Japanese authorities continue to increase. One of the key actors in applying that pressure has been the Japanese stock exchange. And I think, you know, most notably last week, there was this great interview we had in the FT with the head of, uh, you know, JPX, which owns like the Tokyo Stock Exchange, the main Japanese exchange. And they're doing effectively like a name and shame campaign for companies that don't properly disclose required plans for corporate reform. It's sort of like the equivalent if there was like a like a Nasdaq naughty list or like a FTSE fortnightly fool or something like that <laughs> uh, of just companies that don't behave well and like, you know, shaping up their balance sheet, returning cash to shareholders. Yeah. Look, they're not framing it exactly like that, to be absolutely <laughs> fair. But yes. They should, actually. They should. <laughs> so really interesting interview with Hiromi Yamaji, who, is, as you say, is chief executive of JPX, which owns the Osaka and Tokyo exchanges. Now, back in March, he said, you know, we, and it's not obligatory, but we expect companies to show progress towards boosting their share price and improving corporate governance. It's not an obligation. But this is sort of taken as a signal by the market back in March that, OK, they're serious this time. They really do want corporate governance reform. And what he said to us the other day was that in like from January, the plan at least is to publish, drumroll, the list. The so list. everyone's been talking about the list. The and this list. will be the list of companies that have indicated that, you know, filled in a form somewhere to say we are making best efforts to improve the performance of our shares and to improve corporate governance. So they're going to be publishing a list of companies that are compliant is not quite the word because, like I say, it's not a rule. It's a kind of aspiration. But they're going to be publishing a list of companies that are showing intent to make progress towards this goal. And look, it's not rocket science. You can match up this list of companies that are making best efforts Compare it to the full list of all the 3,000 or so companies that are you know, listed on the main bits of these stock exchanges and figure out which ones are not on it. And so what investors are telling us is it's going to be a really big incentive to companies to really supercharge efforts if they're not making them already. Because a lot are not making them because, like I say, it's not obligatory. So I guess it's kind of an exaggeration to call it the equivalent of the NASDAQ naughty list. It's more like the NASDAQ nice list. And then they want you to kind of <laughs> infer who would be on the hypothetical naughty list. Yes, but, you that's know, one way of looking at it. I, like, I think that there's, there's a reason that they're increasing this pressure, right? Which is that, you know, when the Tokyo Stock Exchange published these aspirational recommendations earlier this year, only about a third of companies, actually, you know, less than a third, have gotten on board with that program and actually started to publish or move toward publishing plans to shape up their finances. And yeah. so now this, I, to me, I think this represents an escalation, even though incremental, on the behalf of the authorities trying to kind of apply pressure in any way they can. Yeah, it is a gentle but meaningful escalation. And, you know, as as the JPX chief executive was telling us, you know, this kind of nudge is important in, in Japanese culture and in Japanese markets. Absolutely. This is something that comes up with anybody who uh, does full-time investing in Japan, based out of Japan, is that it's a culture where you want to kind of earn the respect of your peers. And to be even like implicitly on a list of, of sort of you know, disreputable or, or poor behavior can imply kind of a lot of qualitative pressure. So to kind of add to our list of things that need to happen next for this Japan rally, right? We've mentioned 
retail investors in Japan need to get involved, perhaps through this tax-free investment Mm. visa account. Corporate reform needs to continue apace. And then lastly, I think this is one of the big swing factors. Global investors uh, have to, at least on the margin, get on board with this bull case that's been building for the better part of a year. Yeah. So now is the kind of crunch point. It's time for people to put money where their mouths are if, if that's the decision that they choose to take. But there's no doubting the resolve of the authorities, whether it will work or not. You know, longer term, nobody knows that. And and Japan is, I was about to say, it's not an island, but it is literally islands. <laughs> but like, what I mean is, you know, right. it's yes. not it's not divorced from the global economy. You know, no one can control what happens next in terms of global growth and inflation. But certainly the structural reform is there and nothing can happen without that. So that's what the bulls are excited about. And just to wrap up, Katie, I I think this is really about capitalism. Again, you know, the explicit economic plan of the Kishida administration is to realize a new form of capitalism, to double asset-based income. That's their plan for the economy, to revitalize an economy that's been a laggard for 20 or 30 years. Remains to be seen if it'll work, of course. But I think, you know, if you wanted to make the case for global investors, I I think you do kind of have to put it in those terms that there's an attempt to reorient the fundamental model in a way that benefits both shareholders and, you know, hopefully everyday Japanese people, too. This is profound stuff, Ethan. Where's Robert Armstrong when you need him? (laughs) All right, Katie, we'll be back in a moment with Long Short. Liquid alternatives can offer some substantial diversifying returns, not only in a 2022 world where traditional asset classes are challenged, but also during a world where you have only a few asset classes delivering on their expected returns. And therefore, you need some genuine diversification within your portfolio. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long Short, that part of the show where we go long a thing we love to love, short a thing we love to hate. Katie, I'm short this Citibank sandwich scandal employment lawsuit. Oh, my that. God. I love <laughs> this so much. <laughs> we, let, let's explain what it is. So according to the Financial Times, basically, right, City won an employment lawsuit where this guy who was just some analyst in like the regulatory compliance department or whatever, mm-hmm. he expensed two sandwiches, two coffees, and another drink, allegedly for him and his partner. And then when confronted about it by the expenses department or his manager or whatever, he was like, "I yeah, I ate all this. Why, why are you questioning me? And it, <laughs> it, it escalated into a whole fight over, did he lie to the manager or whatever? And he got fired and he sued them and blah, blah, blah. The details are, you know, really just incredible. But I love how petty everyone is in this story. But I also hate it. Like, can we just be adults here, right? Like, why did this have to escalate to management? Why did he have to get fired for this? It's just ridiculous. So you want to purchase more sandwiches, is what you're saying, on the company's dime? (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, I do kind of, I do kind of agree with this guy's principle, right? If it's under the hundred dollar limit, who cares if it goes to your spouse? Like, that's come on. This is a expense the company's already allotted money for. Listen, what if I'm just really hungry? <laughs> Don't mess with the expense department, Ethan. This is like That's the number true. one rule of corporate life. You won't win and they will not back down. <laughs> That's true. 
I know we have a lot of listeners at Citibank, and if you are one of them or at any other global bank and you have had one too many sandwiches on your expense account, please email me, ethan.wu at ft.com. You will feel better having told me your confession. <laughs> All right, Katie, are you long something? I am very much long VC bros really hurting in the higher interest rate environment and taking it mm. out on blog platforms. <laughs> so oh. I hope you have seen, if you haven't, do check it out. Mark Andreessen from A16Z, I would call it. I think you'd call it A16Z. But the big VC firm, big in crypto, big in a bunch of other things. He's written quite a lengthy screed about technology and the manifold benefits that it brings to the world. And it really is worth a read, but there's a whole section in it that particularly caught my eye. And it, the section is called The Enemy. Mm. So Mark Andreessen wants you to know we have enemies and they include risk management. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. ESG and stakeholder capitalism, to name just a few. It just says to me that as this interest rate cycle is turning, we're going to see a lot of VC bros saying amusing things on the internet, and I am here for it. Mark Andreessen, are you expensing illegal sandwiches? <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> All right, Katie, thanks for being here. We'll have you back next week. And listeners, we'll be back in your feed on Thursday with another episode of Unhedged. Catch you then. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Bryant Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Jacob Weisberg, and Jess Trulia. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedged offer. I'm Ethan Wu. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 